You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So one thing I have to do on the podcast a lot is uh, keep myself from singing because we can't afford the copyrights. <laughs> we can't pay for uh, the songs. And what's really interesting about Pirates of Penzance is that I think a lot of people think it's from the early 80s, late 70s, maybe because of all the pictures that we've seen of that, that big Broadway production. But it is so much older than that. It is probably, no, it's without a doubt, the oldest show that we have covered thus far on a musical theater podcast, which also means public domain. And Gina, you are hereby allowed to sing whatever you want from the show because it is free 99. Oh my goodness. Isn't that exciting? Oh my goodness. Okay, well, I was not prepared to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Just to let you know, though. So okay. wait, I know that you're a classical singer, but like soprano, what do you, where, where are you living? I am a high mezzo-soprano. I love it. So you'd be like an Edith or would you go full Mabel here? Yeah, no, it's actually funny because I was called back for Mabel around the time I was finishing grad school. Oh, no and way. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness I didn't get it because I couldn't sing it. It was so high. <laughs> it is really freaking high. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing Gilbert and Sullivan's hilarious operetta, The Pirates of Penzance, which was a listener request from Sophie, who wrote in and said, quote, it's such a fun and underrated show, and it got sort of abandoned after the 90s, unquote. 1990s, by the way. Uh, I also have to shout out Makoto, who wrote me a long time ago requesting that we cover Gilbert and Sullivan, and I've been trying to find the right opportunity. She did an independent study on the, this composing duo and, um, and had this to say about them, which just totally blew my mind. Quote, On revisiting the works in the study, I found a lot of richness that I hadn't picked up on previously. The works have very interesting things to say about power dynamics, policing of women's autonomy and sexuality, bureaucracy's indifference to human concerns, the inherent exploitive nature of capitalism, and so much more are explored within them. The cynicism of Gilbert's libretti and the deep earnestness of Sullivan's music create a harmony of opposites that works almost too well to be true, and I feel like the works kind of function within their own topsy-turvy universe, a funhouse mirror reflecting our own human absurdity. I found them a bit like Rodgers and Hammerstein, often dismissed as antiquated and fluffy, but in reality, containing rich, complex characters and challenging subjects, unquote. What? This is maybe the best email I've ever received. Thank you, Makoto. And uh, I hope that we <laughs> can, can live up to uh, your incredible view on this composing duo. Well, here we are at last covering Gilbert and Sullivan. And here to join me is someone who really represents, I think, a peaceful bridge between the classical opera and musical theater worlds. That's the place where we need to live today, folks. And I'm so grateful she's here. Everyone, please welcome Gina Morgano. Yay! Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm so excited to be here. All right. So talk to me a little bit about how you found yourself in this place where you're you're fluent. Yeah. You speak both opera and musical theater fluently. So t talk to me about how you found yourself in that place. Sure. Well, thank you for saying that. 
I grew up as a classical musician. I played piano and violin and clarinet, and I spent my whole childhood in orchestras and bands. And I always loved musical theater. I would go to see shows with my family, starting with Phantom when I was maybe five years old. Sure. And I trained classically, but I always had a love for musical theater. Mm. And I was really lucky that my childhood piano teacher her father was a jazz musician, so she was not one of those stuffy teachers that only mm. let us do classical. She allowed me to embrace all of my musical interests. And so from there, I went on to study classical voice in college and in grad school, but I was always doing musicals. I was in the musical theater program um, at Northwestern, and then I was doing musicals in grad school at San Francisco Conservatory. And then I moved to New York, and I was singing you know, classical symphonic concerts and then doing cabarets at 54 Below. So <laughs> I've just been really grateful that my mentors and my teachers have allowed me to explore my varied interests throughout my life. That's so cool. That's so cool. So for those who may find that that meeting of genres intimidating, to say the least, which I include myself in this, um, is the difference solely in technique or is it also in approach and kind of culture? What do you think? I think it's both for sure. Sure. Um, from a technical perspective, the way that you are aligning your vocal mechanism is slightly different in these different genres. Mm -hmm. That said, we want to have a balanced instrument. So I do think that it's important to cross train, to train yourself in a variety of styles so that you can give your voice flexibility. Mm, more colors and, to color with. Absolutely. And then in terms of culture and approach, in opera, it very much is voice first. It's yeah. all about the vocal technique. And in musical theater, it tends to be acting first. It's more about the storytelling as the primary priority. Mm -hmm. I think there has been, as we'll see with Gilbert and Sullivan, a lot of blending. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing blending again now, and we've seen it throughout time. But it's very easy for people to sort of pick one and then pigeonhole themselves or others into the box. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, that's such a good way of saying it. I've often thought of us all in this like huge extended family. And if we were to have this big family reunion, uh, this big like musical theater family reunion, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there would have to be this conversation of, are we going to invite the opera people? You know what I mean? Because they're related to us 100%. And also, I think that the same goes on the other side. You know, if uh, I have felt ostracized many a, a time by an opera person um, as not being legit in in my musical tastes. But we're all related. We really, really are. Yes. I love the idea of one big happy family. <laughs> well, it's one probably big dysfunctional family with a lot of fighting <laughs> at Thanksgiving. But we're family nonetheless. And, we, and there's got to be love there uh, underneath it all. Now, if we're looking at our family tree of musical theater, I would say at least the grandparents on one side are operetta, if not Gilbert and Sullivan. So how would you describe the difference between opera and operetta? Oh, okay. Yeah, this is a loaded I, question. <laughs> it is. It is. And we're trying to like, and I know that we could probably do an entire two hour episode on that. But like, let's break it down yes. real simple. Okay. So, well, the first thing I'll say is every person you ask is going to give you a different answer. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so we can look at it from a variety of angles. The first is, again, are we coming from the operatic side or the musical theater side? Are we coming from the acting and the play side? Are we coming from the classic musical tradition? They are both there. Um, we also have, when we talk about Operetta and Gilbert and Sullivan in particular, we have this British comedic opera tradition. Which is maybe even its own little subset from Operetta? Absolutely. But a lot of times people will think of that when they think of Operetta. So maybe something like Candide, which is Bernstein that came later, mm -hmm. that definitely harkens back to many aspects of Gilbert and Sullivan comedic opera. Mm -hmm. But then we have things like Showboat and Carousel, which are these 
serious dramas, but they also come from an operetta tradition where it is classical music, but combined with some popular sensibilities. Mm. That was a great answer. Thank you. Now, in terms of sung through versus dialogue, right? Gilbert and Sullivan uh, has both. Yes, they do. And would all, do all operetta have both? Um, I would say most do. That said, again, it depends on how you're defining operetta. So mm. there could be something that, um, let's take Les Mis, for instance, right? That's mm-hmm. that's sung through. It is musical theater, for sure. Mm-hmm. But to me, it also has a lot of classical elements to it. Right. And so the, now we're getting, thanks to musical theater, into this place of pop opera. Yes. And where does that fall into the line? Is it more operetta than opera? Is it more opera than operetta? But with, you know, like, it, it's interesting because we love classifications and we, we love representation. But boy, oh boy, when we're talking about these really old traditions and artistic traditions that are constantly blending and evolving and taking influences from artists from all over the world, it gets really, really tricky to draw very, very clear lines. Absolutely. Do you have any favorite modern musical theater pieces that are that could also be considered classical pieces? Just wondering. The Light in the Piazza comes immediately to mind. Of course. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's classic operetta. 100%. 100%. Well said, Gina Morgano. Okay, so now let's talk about Gilbert and Sullivan themselves. Yes. Uh, First up, Arthur Sullivan, who wrote the music. He was an English composer. He was kind of one of those kids who was always brilliant, you know, like soloist in the boys' choir, then got into an academy at a very, very young age. His first, I think, full compositions are are produced and lauded at the age of 19, right? <laughs> like, he, he was, he's always been a, a musical genius. And I loved what Makoto wrote in that email about how earnest his music is. He's a very empathetic melodist. What do you yes. love about Sullivan's music? I love that he puts his own twist on a classic. Mm. He, of the duo, personally, I think, he obviously he's the musical side, but he's also that classical lineage side. I mean, he trained in an elite boys choir. He has been compared to Mozart. Mm. Um, he knew his opera. Right. And yet he doesn't take it too seriously. He's able to have fun with it, um, kind of in the way Mozart did as a kid, that little bit of um, mischievous. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> You're, that's so true. How fun. So that idea of in order to bring something new to it, you have to know it to begin with. Yes, absolutely. You have to know the rules in order to break them. And he partners up with this guy by the name of W.S. Gilbert, Sir William Schwenk Gilbert. And this is the irreverent guy. Uh, there is something about his, uh, his sense of humor and his, the way that he saw the world that, that Sullivan really appreciated. And uh, the, the two work so beautifully together. Gilbert started out as a surgeon. <laughs> in the in the military, which is insane. And then he was like, you know what? I'm actually much better at, at writing. He begins writing plays and, I mean, incredibly prolific. Wrote over 40 plays in libretti. And his biggest hits were with Sullivan. What What's their early stuff? I'm trying to think of uh, their... Uh, well, Thespis... That was, that was like the first one, right? Yes, that was 1871, and not much of that survives. Okay. Then they collaborated with Doily Cart, and Trial by Jury in 1875 was their fo- first collaboration, and that set off the chain of their successful operas. And Doily Cart was a successful producer. Yes. Had a theater company, and they, the three of them, I mean, they kind of become the Stephen Sondheim, Harold Prince of their time, uh, because they they're just churning out hit after hit. 
Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that Gilbert also worked as a lawyer for a bit. So he pulled on that for trial by jury, that experience. Oh, interesting. Ooh, cool. I didn't I didn't find that. That's that's interesting. So he's had so many jobs. <laughs> yes. And maybe understands the world from all of these different professions. And then once again, knows the rules well enough in order to be able to break them. What this duo is known for right off the bat is creating these topsy-turvy worlds. And if anybody hasn't seen the movie called Topsy-Turvy, that's all about Gilbert and Sullivan, highly recommend. But what we generally mean by by topsy-turvy is that they took ridiculous things and pushed the and mashed them together and then allowed it to play out very logically and seriously. Yes, I love how your listener talked about opposites Mm -hmm. and opposite harmony. And I think that's such a beautiful phrase to describe this duo. Yeah. So they're going to take, in the case of the Pirates of Penzance, an entity that's known as being, you know, horrible and uh, unethical, like pirates. And they're going to place them in Penzance, which was known as being a a resort town and very, (laughs) very highfalutin, very classy. And so they're pushing these two things together, gentlemen and duty and then pirates, and then taking it very seriously and presenting it very straight faced. That is their sense of comedy that kind of goes throughout all of their their biggest hits, including HMS Pinafore, The Mikado and the Pirates of Penzance. So the Pirates of Penzance premiered in 1879. 1879! Yes. Definitely not from the early 1980s, guys. No. In New York, it's their only piece that premiered in the United States, in America. Which is really interesting because we started this conversation talking about copyrights. And the yes. reason that they started in New York for Pirates of Penzance was because of copyrights. So, so uh, sorry to interrupt you, but keep going. I, I love this story. It's so great. Yeah. So Pinafore became a big hit in London. And so people started doing it in America. But because at the time, America didn't have copyright protections for foreigners, people in America would change it. They would change the lyrics and they would put their own spin on it. They're literally doing whatever they wanted and not paying Gilbert and Sullivan a dime. Nope. So Gilbert and Sullivan wanted to get ahead of it. And so they decided, along with Doily Cart, to produce the show in the United States on their own. They brought it to New York and they actually premiered it in... England the day before and sort of a low budget version just to also have the copyright over there, have it premiered over there. And then they premiered it in New York so that they had complete control. They ran the rehearsals and they brought over their actors. They did hire some actors from America as well to collaborate with them, but they ran a very tight ship. So they (laughs) had complete (laughs) creative freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming to New York is a huge, at this point, in the late 1800s, it's not just, you know, boarding a jet and flying over here. So it's a huge commitment to come over here. They premiere their, you know, official production of HMS Pinafore to show the Americans, by the way, this is how you do the show. And and while they're doing that, they're writing and revising and editing and rehearsing the Pirates of Penzance. But once again, like you said, there was no agreement between countries to respect the copyright and protect artists. And so even though they wanted to premiere it in America, they still needed the English copyright. So they had their current company of HMS Pinafore one night randomly with kind of scripts in hand or scores in hand, if you will, go out in their HMS Pinafore costumes and perform the Pirates of Penzance. And I'm sure the audience was like, completely confused. But it was it was really just an ambush thing in order to make sure that their that their work was protected uh, in both countries. Yes. Fun fact. 
Sir Arthur Sullivan left his Act One manuscripts for pirates over in England when they took the boat over. Stop it. Yes, so he was literally rewriting Act One from memory and coming up with a couple of new songs because he essentially had to start from scratch. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And isn't it true also that he incorporated parts of Thespis because, like running over Rocky Mountains, which by the way I can sing and not have to pay for because it was written in the 1800s. But um, there are little pieces of Thespis in the Pirates of Penzance. Yes, and... It's really interesting because there is question about when Pirates of Penzance takes place. At the beginning Mm. of the show, they mentioned that it is Frederick's birthday. And later, it's revealed that he was born on Leap Day. So that would make it February 29th. However, in Climbing Over Rocky Mountain, it talks about the summer. (gasps) Oh, true. So does it take place in February or in the summer? Okay, that, that is a good question. Or is it actually the summer, but they're just now realizing the whole birthday thing and it doesn't have anything to do with February? It's you possible. know what I mean? But they did mention that it's his birthday, I believe. I'm pretty sure. Okay, so I would love to say that all of their, you know, time and energy put into protecting the copyright worked. However, it was still kind of the Wild West of <laughs> theater producing, and it, uh, it, it didn't. But Pirates of Penzance was a huge hit, both critically and publicly. And I think that there is something to really be said about the power of operetta in that way, because it is maybe a little bit more populist. Opera tends to be pretty heavy, very tragic. A lot of people die. And operetta doesn't take itself too seriously. And diehard purists may may look down upon that. But boy, oh boy, I don't. And it's the same in all art forms. You know, how, how many times has a comedy won Best Picture at the Oscars? Not often. It's always the dramas that get taken more seriously. It's so true. I will never understand why Reese Witherspoon was not nominated for Legally Blonde. <laughs> Hello, that is a great that's a that's a great call. Iconic, um, but Iconic talking about Gilbert and Sullivan and the popular music and theater of the time, we have to remember that this came from the Offenbach operetta tradition. Okay, so, help me understand what that means. Okay, so Jacques Offenbach was a German-born French composer. He later wrote The Tales of Hoffman, the opera. Okay. But he was known for writing more than 100 operettas. Oh, wow. So operetta really came from the French, um, but they were he was writing burlesque. And it's not burlesque necessarily how we would think of like Gypsy Rose Lee, but it mm-hmm. was risque. It was more, he wrote Orpheus en Fer, Orpheus in the Underworld, um, which is where the can-can comes from. Mm. So all the can-can girls. So he would premiere these shows. That's fascinating. That came from operetta? Yes. So wow. Would... <laughs> I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Th- that's so cool. Okay, keep going. He would premiere these shows in Paris and then bring them to London. And in a way, they were popular. However, they were risque. And so the upper crust British um, did not like them. The theater was considered kind of seedy and body. It was not something that you would take your families to. But this also coincided with the advent of the railroad. And people were now coming to downtown London and able to, you know, come in for the night or for the weekend and bringing their families. And so they needed entertainment. Mm. So it really came at an opportune time for Gilbert and Sullivan. And Gilbert and Sullivan were a solution to this dilemma that people liked the burlesque-esque operetta of Offenbach Mm -hmm. in terms of its fun nature um, and the songs, but they wanted something that was more wholesome and more family friendly. Wow. And I mean, they succeeded in it too, because here you have the the bevy of maidens who are kind of making fun of the fact that, ooh, we're going to show our feet. Uh, But then at the same time, um, everybody's covered up. So it is still family friendly. You're, you're, You're making fun of it and doing it at the same time. Yes. And that's the thing with Gilbert and Sullivan is that it's satire. 
And so often that gets lost because, I mean, it's true. It's from the 1800s, right? So there is misogyny and racism and all of these things that like today would not fly. Mm -hmm. Um, However, at the time, it was written in a spirit of satire. So they, in the Mikado, for instance, they were not making fun of the Japanese. They were making fun of the British. And how they viewed the Japanese. Exactly. Although, you know, of course, today there are considerations that need to be made as we put on these shows. 100%. That brings us to a really interesting point in the conversation, which is how do these things age? And in the case of the Pirates of Penzance, it had a huge second life. In the early 1980s, we already had the tradition of Shakespeare in the Park, yeah, in Central Park, that was spearheaded by Joseph Papp, who we've talked about in A Chorus Line, a legendary producer. And what, what was it? Was it 1981? I believe it was 1981. He decides to forego Shakespeare and instead do Gilbert and Sullivan, in particular, The Pirates of Penzance. And doing The Pirates of Penzance in the middle of Central Park with a couple of, honestly, pop stars in Linda Ronstant, uh, who was a a famous recording artist at the time, Uh, Rex Smith, who at that point was kind of a a bubblegum pop teen idol. Then you also had Kevin Kline, who was a famous actor, but not necessarily known for opera, right, or operetta. And doing a whole new take on the orchestrations. There was not a single violin to be had. It was all synth. So really taking an interesting new look at the Pirates of Penzance, but not updating it, not modernizing it in any way. But there were just these little elements that brought it to a whole new audience. And was it a success? Yes. It actually, they did it in the park at the Delacorte, and then it transferred to Broadway, and then they filmed it. They went to London to film it in 83. Not only did it go to Broadway, it went to Broadway at the Eurus, which is now the Gershwin Theater, one of the biggest houses on Broadway, and had no problem filling that huge theater for a couple of years. It got across the board raving reviews. Won many Tony Awards. I think it's one of the big reasons why best revival of a musical is even a thing now. Kevin Klein, I mean, it really cements Kevin Klein's star power because he was so sexy and, and clownish at the same time. Uh, and then, like you said, they turned it into a film with most of the same cast, which kind of disappears. But I remember seeing it when I was little. I think that was the first time I had seen The Pirates of Penzance was that movie version. When when did, did you see it? Or have you done it? I... I saw it. Um, I saw it probably in college for the first time. Mm. Um, and Angela Lansbury played Ruth in the movie. I know. Is that a great casting? That's mm-hmm. awesome casting. It was really interesting because, once again, talking about copyrights, right before the movie version of The Pirates of Penzance came out, the pirate movie came out. Have you? Do you remember this? No. The pirate movie... Um, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to look this up. I wasn't going to talk about this on the episode, but it was like a 1982 Australian musical romantic comedy film. Thank you, Wikipedia. Um, Loosely based on Gilbert and Sullivan's 1879 comic opera, The Pirates of Penzance. But once again, because it's like public domain, they could come out with this and do their own thing even while The Pirates of Penzance was actually being filmed in the way that it was done on Broadway. So it was like, it was too much saturation and both films kind of flopped. It's interesting because when Pirates was originally written, pirate stories were very popular. Mm. And I don't know if this is fact, but I always thought that Captain Hook was inspired by the Pirate King. Interesting. Kind of the foppish idea of what a pirate is. Mm -hmm. I don't see why not. (laughs) All right. Where are we now before we head into talking through the show? 
Where are we now with pirates? I, I don't think it's in the same realm as the Mikado in terms of the trickiness of being uh, produced nowadays. But our other listener, uh, Sophie, was was correct. I was seeing it produced pretty consistently in regional theaters throughout the 90s and even into the early 2000s. But it has kind of all but disappeared uh, maybe because the audience who loves it and knows it has passed away, question mark? What do you think? That's interesting because there are a lot of organizations that are super passionate about Gilbert and Sullivan today. And That's a lot true. Of That's true. I know of one in, in Southern California. Yes. I have a couple of friends who are going to the International Gilbert and Sullivan Festival in England <laughs> this week. It's always the first week, week of August. Oh, my um, gosh. The first week of August. And there are companies. I was living in San Francisco. There's Lamplighters Music Theater um, in, in Pittsburgh now, the Savoy Yards. In New York, there are um, there's the Blue Hill Troupe, which does Gilbert and Sullivan, and there are other Gilbert and Sullivan companies that specialize in this material. And there's a lot of young people in the companies. So I don't know why. Mm, that's really cool. Yeah. I don't know why some of the more mainstream places are not doing these pieces more frequently because there are a lot of young people who are very passionate about it. This is interesting. This gets me thinking because I was the other day as I was preparing for this episode, I started thinking about our current trend of producing musical revivals, which is from a place of accountability, looking at what sorts of messaging comes from these stories for better or worse and taking looks at them that might make reparations, but also that might send the message that we want into the world. Is that is that a fair way of saying it? Yes, for sure. There is a lot of consideration that has to be had when doing Gilbert and Sullivan in order to do it for a modern audience. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense that there would be these preservation societies who actually have to narrow their mission statement a little bit because it requires so much effort and focus to celebrate the work in a way that is both palatable and respectful to the artists and the audiences. And it makes me wonder if musical theater, as I know it, might go a little bit in that direction eventually as well. We may need more sorts of preservation societies instead of regional theaters. It might not be a regional theater's responsibility to keep the classics alive. That's very it, interesting. You know, I, I, I wonder if eventually we'll kind of go in that same direction. Instead of feeling the responsibility to revamp and redo all of the classics, if it may then go to another group that uh, that's a little bit more specialized. That is fascinating. I don't know. It's just a it's just an idea. It is really interesting to think about. And I think with a lot of these classics, you can look at them through multiple lenses, and the lens that you look at it through determines how palatable it is to a modern audience. Mm. But the fact that you have to make that lens clear to your audience and that you have to do that work versus just putting the work out there and everybody automatically getting it and understanding it and not being offended mm-hmm. sets the bar higher. Yeah. It's a hurdle. Yeah. It's, it requires effort. Ooh, interesting stuff. I could talk about this for a long time, but we need to keep going. So let's talk through the show. We're going to start at the top of it and uh, work our way through. Feel free to sing anything and everything, Gina. We begin with this merry band of pirates. And right from the get-go, I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan are a masterclass in establishing tone from the top. Because what is this first song called? Pour the Sherry. Now, I, 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 am, not, I am not a drinker, as listeners of, <laughs> of the podcast may remember. But I do know one thing about alcohol, and that is that sherry is a drink for very fancy people with very tiny little cups and maybe have their pinkies out while they're while they're drinking it. So the fact that this big group of pirates is coming and singing a drinking song about Sherry is establishing the comedy and tone of this show. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's funny as you mentioned before that 
Penzance is a seaside resort town. Right. So what are pirates doing? <laughs> what are they at even this- doing there? Yeah. Getting a tan. <laughs> <laughs> and they are just the merriest bunch of pirates that you'll ever meet. They have an apprentice by the name of Frederick. And he's graduating at this point from his apprentice-dum? Yes. From apprenticeship. His, in- his internship, if you will. <laughs> And the reason that he is uh, he was uh, an apprentice to pirates is because of his childhood maid by the name of Ruth. And Ruth, she'll tell you she's really good at her job, but she has kind of one fatal flaw, and that is her uh, sense of hearing. She's, she can't hear very well. And her job in raising young Frederick was to get him involved in an apprenticeship as a pilot, a pilot. Um, That didn't go well because when she met the pirates, she thought that they said pilots. And thus chaos ensued. And now for the past, what, 19 years, he's had to be a pirate because she couldn't hear. Yes. So I think it was his his 18th birthday. He's supposed to be out of his indentured servitude. Indentured servitude, exactly. And um, by the way, this operetta has like uh, the tagline or, the, or like the subtitle, slave, the slave of duty. And duty is the word that keeps coming up over and over again, particularly for Frederick. I was wrong. It's his 21st birthday. 21st? Oh, goodness. He is a man. Yes. <laughs> okay. Being a, a robust gentleman like that, he is ready to leave the pirates and find himself a lady friend. And when they leave the pirate ship much to the disdain of the pirate king, who says it is a a, a marvelous thing to be a pirate king. Ruth says, Frederick, I'm a woman. (laughs) Why not go with the devil you know? Um, You don't know about women, but you know me and I love you. And this works out really well for me. And he's like, oh, well, I, I mean, yes, you are a wonderful woman, but like... Are you are you beautiful? I've never seen another woman. And she's like, no, I'm I'm really hot, babe. Like, don't worry. I've been called very beautiful in my time. Granted, it was probably 20 or 30 years ago. But she's really kind of selling this whole thing to him. Enter a bevy of young maidens. Yeah. And then when he sees what a woman looks like who's his own age, he says, oh, false one, you have deceived me. <laughs> that's kind of the opening of the whole show is is Frederick getting free from these pirates. Do you have any favorite moments here? I love Ruth's number. Yes. And the pilot and pirate. Yes. It's so funny, but also it is so sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, really. And I think this is where some of the misogyny comes in because it's poking fun at an older woman. Sure. Um, but also like she is aware of her mistake. She didn't hear correctly and she made this major mistake and she's owning up to it. And then, you know, all the dominoes fall for the rest of the story. No, you're so right. And she's, she's a total kook. She knows it. She, she's the one right from the get go. That's like, I'm good at my job, but I have a, I have a fatal flaw here and it has changed our lives immeasurably yes and and also i i think that there's a a sadness to the fact that obviously she wants to get off the boat right i mean she right. doesn't want to be left with the pirates so that's why she's like choose me frederick like i'll go right. with you mm. um but also there is something to being an older woman and either being told you're not beautiful or questioning your beauty mm. um and so i just think there's a lot to think about with her experience that's a good point and something, thank you for bringing this to to our minds, not just my mind, but everyone listening. The idea that Ruth has given up her entire life to look after this boy. And so if she is no longer a young beauty, it's because of her own sense of duty of doing her job and taking care of this kid. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, the hit song, I am, you know, I am a pirate king. And that's the pirate sense of duty because Frederick says, well, you know, come and, and 
you know, give up this life. He said, no, no, this is my duty. I am mm. a pirate king. Now, the pirates, in addition to being gentlemen who uh, who drink sherry, are also not great at their jobs, according to Frederick. Frederick says he he feels very torn because once he leaves the pirate ship, he knows that his great quest in life is going to be to destroy them because they are pirates. But he also tells them, at the same time, though, maybe you should all just stop being pirates because then I won't have to destroy you. And you're also not very good at it anyway. You, <laughs> you never attack anybody that's less than you. Like, you never punch down, which, good for them. And number two, if you run into anybody and they say that they are an orphan, you refuse to kill them. And that had the word has spread, and so now every ship that they try and take over, the entire crew just says, we're orphans, and they're like, oh, okay, well, we don't want to destroy orphans because we ourselves are orphans, and we don't want, uh, we don't want that hanging on our, our souls, our consciences, which is just so sweet, but also, like, so not pirate-like. They do have hearts, right? They're pirates, but I think Big that's also hearts. Yes, I think that's also why the Pirates of Penzance is so fun is because they're lovable pirates. Yes. So now Frederick is looking at all of these beauties. He introduces himself with a gorgeous song. I mean, my gosh. Oh, is there not one maiden breast? Stunning, so beautiful. Stunning song. And what he's saying in the song to all of these women is is there any one of you beautiful maidens that would be willing to be with me? Uh, FYI, I've been a pirate. Uh, I just want you to know that because duty. And they all say, nope, none of us. Sorry, we're not down with that. And then he says, oh, okay. Well, are there any ugly ones then? Because this is how badly I want a lady. And they say, nope, none of those either. You are not welcome here. Then appears one of their sisters by the name of Mabel, and she says, I'm down to clown. Yes, and Mabel sees his goodness and believes that he can change and be redeemed. And, um, you know, it's just beautiful that she is willing to give him this chance. Cue one of the most popular or I guess well-known songs in the entire show, Poor Wandering One. Yes, and, you know, here is a prime example of Sir Arthur Sullivan taking the popular opera traditions, Donizetti and Bel Canto, which was the earlier part of the 1800s and Gounod going into the Romantic period and writing this aria for Mabel. It goes up to a high E flat. It is extremely difficult to sing. And I would say, yeah, it's probably the most, it is the most challenging number in the score, perhaps in all of Gilbert and Sullivan. And it's really interesting that a pop singer, Linda Ronstadt, was cast in this role. And, you know, a lot has been said about, you know, her, the singing and her singing. I'll just say that I am a ginormous Linda Ronstadt fan. I adore no, her. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think she did an incredible job, um, but she did sing it in a different tone than someone who was trained fully as an opera singer would sing it. Mm -hmm. And um, granted, there are also places in that in that 80s revival where she is belting her brains out on top of yes. singing Poor Wandering One. Like it, it's an it's incredibly versatile performance. Absolutely. It's and we also have to remember Linda Ronstand, badass hippie, playing yes. Mabel, which brings me to, I think Mabel's a really interesting character and can absolutely be played as stupid and doe-eyed, you know, and I unfortunately have seen that. I think she's a fascinating human being because she, above all of these women, is willing to be like, I can handle this situation. She's kind of a boss. She really is. I mean, she speaks up. And I know we didn't get to act two yet, but she speaks up in act two mm -hmm. and she goes after what she wants and she says it out loud and in very grandiose ways. Yeah, she is not afraid to let her voice be heard. No. Frederick and Mabel immediately hit it off. The sisters, which, oh, I get they're all sisters. I, I guess I didn't say that at the beginning. All the sisters are letting them have their space, but also kind of want to hear. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly what's going on because they want the they want the tea. And in that moment is when the pirates sneak on and capture them all. And because they are the gentle pirates they are, they say, ha ha, we've captured these maidens and now we will marry them and have happy, beautiful families. <laughs> Very different than most pirates. Very different indeed. And then it is discovered that these are not any maidens. Yes, exactly. These sisters drop the bomb that their father is none other than the modern major general himself, a general in the British army. And here he comes right now. Now this song, the modern major general, is maybe one of the most iconic pieces of theater ever? For sure. It has been referenced in popular culture time and time again. It's referenced in Hamilton. Hamilton mm-hmm. literally says, I am the very model of a modern... Wait, I got to say that again. <laughs> Hamilton literally says, I am the very model of a modern major general. Yeah, absolutely. Did the Patter song begin before this? Like, do, I don't know HMS Pinafore that well. Do do these types of patter songs exist in other uh, in other works? And if you don't know, that's totally fine. I don't recall specifically in Pinafore, but I do believe that the actor who was playing the modern major general excelled at patter songs. So mm. therefore, I do believe that they did exist before. Now, of course, the patter song all by itself it, it's one of the core pieces of musical theater writing. Yes, absolutely. We uh, we covered Lady in the Dark earlier this year, and Tchaikovsky is a patter song. Uh, you've got Trouble in Music Man, which would also be considered a, a patter song. And I guess the inevitable question is, would rap have found its way into musical theater without the patter song? I would like to believe yes. But because we have this long history of it in the art form, there was already a door open. For sure. Personally, I, I do not know enough about the history of rap, but it seems just such an obvious connection and lineage. I mean, just again, using Hamilton as the example, Lin-Manuel Miranda is referencing so many classic musical theater pieces mm-hmm. in the modern style of rap. Yeah. It is, it's just such a perfect blend and perfect fit. Yeah, completely. So everybody uh, is in awe of this modern major general and his wit and the way that he is able to find a uh, a rhyme for just about anything. These lyrics are just some of the most clever things you'll ever hear. In addition to, you know, in short and matters, vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. Then I can hum a fugue of which I've heard the music's din afore and whistle all the airs from that infernal nonsense pinafore. So they were they were referencing themselves and saying, aren't we all sick of that show HMS Pinafore that they wrote? <laughs> I love Pretty it. Brilliant. Again, yes, it's so brilliant. And just being able to poke fun at yourself and not take yourself too seriously. It's amazing. Okay, so moving on. The pirates are like, okay, well, we will overtake you, General, because we really want to marry your daughters. And he says, "Um, okay, but you can't kill me because I'm an orphan. And they're like, no, (laughs) he's an orphan. And towards the end of this first act is Hail Poetry, which the pirates sing. And as I was listening to it yesterday, reminds me a lot of Cats. Oh, tell me more. Okay. So there's that big section in Cats, both at, in the very, very beginning and at the very end, where they are very ceremonious about this is how you address a cat and you call us by this name. And then also, if you want to give us a dish of cream and some salmon paste, like, please do so because we are cats. And musically, the styling is very much straight out of Hail Poetry. The ridiculousness of cats being very, very proper is almost identical to the pirates themselves being very, very proper and appreciating poetry on this level. I, I, I do not know this for certain, but I can't help but feel like listening to it that Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber was inspired by Gilbert and Sullivan for those sections. Amazing. I'll have to listen to it again. Yeah. 
something that's interesting about hail poetry is that it's used as an anthem often in these gilbert and sullivan societies they will sing hail poetry as no way like their alma mater yeah oh how cute anthem. Mm-hmm. i love that that's so great so the first act ends with the modern major general being saved because he's an orphan by the way he's not an orphan and the pirates feeling good about their sense of duty and mabel and Fred- frederick are together and then we come back to see what happens Yes. And there are, I would say in the show, there are three major miscommunications. Mm. The first was Ruth mistaking pilot, pilot, pilot for pirate. For pirate. Mm-hmm. And the second is um, there's a play on the word orphan versus oh. often. Oh my gosh, you're so right. That is <laughs> such a brilliant often. little scene. I mean, it's like classic comedy that Gilbert wrote. Definitely like a who's on first type classic comedy. And then what's number three? Is it coming number up? three? Yes, number three is coming up with the reveal of the contract. In that there was confusion because Frederick thought that he could, he would be relieved of his indentured servitude. He would graduate that on his twenty-first year, and it turns out that the contract specifically states his twenty-first birthday. Mm. And being that Frederick was born on a leap day, February 29th. Yes, he still has many more birthdays to go. (laughs) It's like 63 more years. Yes. With this band of pirates. And they're like, haha, see, you're still part of us. Why do they want him back in? You know, that's a great, great question. (laughs) I'm going to go with duty. I'm going to go with they are being very specific to the contract that was signed. These are honest pirates. They don't lie. Yeah, that's true. This is what we have taught you, Frederick, that you are meant to uh, fulfill your duty, and this is it. Yes. And, you know, a little sidetrack here is going back to the fact that this is political satire, Mm. right? And so we're talking about the aristocracy and the noble class and the duty the duties that they have, and are these politicians honest? Right. Or even just the ridiculousness of what you see as your duty and how how far will you go to, like, have that nobility trap? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know? where, where you're like, no, no, I am good because I'm doing this. And you're like, yeah, but is, are, is the world better for it? I don't think so. Maybe not. Right. I mean, it's so true. I can think of my own life of times where, quick side note, my boss wanted me to get her some coffee cream from Starbucks. And I was like, but I didn't buy coffee. And she was like, Gina, just pour some cream. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, but but no, I can't. (laughs) Oh, that's really funny. Absolutely. I think definitely when I was younger, I was such a a musical theater purist and uh, felt like it was sacrilegious to to bend in any way, shape, or form uh, in, in terms of the art form. And then I realized, do we want to die on that hill or do we want musical theater to survive? And it's like, yeah, w- what hill do you want to die on? Now, the other thing that's happening right here at the top of Act 2 is that the Major General is uh, really coming to terms with his dishonesty because he is not an orphan, and uh, he feels really bad about telling the pirates that he was one. Yes. He is just beating himself up about it. He's so torn, and he's just riddled by the guilt of his little white lie. His daughters are consoling him. And they have also gotten the police involved because in order to protect the women from the pirates and also, I guess, maybe just in case they find out that the major general is, in fact, not an orphan, they're going to have the police ready uh, to arrest them. Now, in the revival, 
the production was choreographed by Graziella Danielle, who I, we talked a lot about on the podcast and is famous for just iconic pieces of staging and should be much more well-known than she is. She did Ragtime and Once on this Island and many, many others. She choreographed this show and staged the policemen as though they were Keystone Cops from silent movies, which brought this whole new sense of comedy and physical wackiness to the second act. It's a big rush of energy that I think has been copied, speaking of copyright, in most productions since then. Uh, So go Grazi on finding a really iconic way to stage these policemen in the second act. Yes, that's awesome. The other thing to say about these policemen is that they're not very good policemen. Is, Is anybody good at their jobs? But they're good at duty, and that's what's important. Yes. You might be able to knock them over with a sneeze. How about that? (laughs) Yes, you might be able to knock them over with a sneeze. (laughs) (laughs) Because Frederick sees the logic in this whole leap year debacle, he agrees to go back with the pirates and rejoin them. And he has to break the news to Mabel. She pleads with him to stay, but he's bound by his duty. The consolation prize is that they agree to be faithful to each other until his actual 21st birthday, which is absolutely ridiculous (laughs) when you think about when that's going to happen. Yes. And I will just say, this is my very favorite part of the show. Ooh, tell me. Oh, here's love and here's truth. Yes. The whole, there's like three songs in a row. Stay Frederick, stay. I'll leave me not to pine. And Mm. oh, Mm. here is love and here is truth. And that is the section where Mabel is begging Frederick to stay and then she sings this beautiful love song and then they sing the duet together. It is just, to me, it's like a moment of stillness in a different way than Hale poetry, but it's just so romantic and beautiful. Mm. So romantic. You're absolutely right. Okay, so now Mabel says, and this is when she really starts taking charge. She tells the police that they, they need to go alone to face the pirates the police then all hide to wait for the pirates to come. Um, the pirates do. They they come onto the estate of the modern major general to take over and to revenge the lie. Because who told them that the that he wasn't an orphan? Was that a Ruth thing? I don't remember. Yeah. Well, in any case, the pirates found out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so now they're back to to take their revenge and also take their wives. And they are creeping up onto this this estate with cat-like tread. And the joke here is that this song is the most loud and boisterous and has this pageantry of choreography. There is nothing silent or cat-like about their approach. They could not be making more noise. Well, we literally have... Um... A rollicking band of pirates we. Oh, right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, these, you know, it's just funny. Like the policemen and the pirates. On one hand, you couldn't think of two groups of people, again, like more opposites. Mm-hmm. And yet they are so similar. So now the pirates are there, the policemen are there, and thus begins like this thing that happens in musical theater, which I love, which is a chasing Boy, oh boy, do I love a chase scene. It it all culminates in this strategy that the the main police officer, the sergeant, has, which is to demand that the pirates stop in the name of Queen Victoria. And, of course, the pirates overcome with their sense of duty and loyalty to the queen. They do. And that's when Ruth appears and reveals that these pirates are not just orphans, but these are noblemen who have gone wrong. Now, here's a question. Yeah. Are they actually noblemen? Well, this is is a great point. Is this Ruth lying (laughs) to to save everybody, or is this true? Because the general says, the modern major general says, I pray you pardon me, ex-pirate king. Peers will be peers, and youth will have its fling. Resume your ranks and legislative duties, and take my daughters, all of whom are beauties. So the general believes that they are noblemen and says, oh, well, then we actually have a lot in common. And so then the finale 
is the entire casting poor wandering ones. They have all been lost in some way. Yes. And yet they have found their way because of their great sense of duty. Now, that comes to your point, which is to ask, is any of it true? Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? But if it, if it wasn't true, I think that the pirates would have to fess up to it. I, to me, it does. It tracks. It makes sense that these were noblemen who had decided that they instead wanted to become pirates, but they couldn't ever quite shed the indoctrination of what being a nobleman meant. And maybe there is something there that Gilbert and Sullivan are, you know, are are looking at and, and poking at, which is... You know, once a hick, always a hick. I'm I'm from the country, and and I, as much as I um, feel like I'm a, a city mouse, deep down I'm always that little boy who constantly had hay down his shirt and hated it. Like the, the, we are who we are. Yes, and I think that would make sense why these pirates have this deep sense of duty and devotion to duty if even if they were separated at birth, right? Mm -hmm. But like, you know, who we are, if that is the lineage that they came from was this nobility and presumably this noble obedience to duty. Right. Then it all would track. Yeah. And just going even further with that, if they are all in fact orphans, does that mean that there wasn't a place in society for them as noblemen to be who they are? And therefore they felt like they had to become pirates. It's really interesting. You know, that meant that they didn't have any money, probably any inheritance, possibly because they didn't have any parents. Um, and so now you have these noblemen with no money. So what are they going? <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, I guess we'll create a band of merry pirates and we'll steal. But in our core, we're still noblemen and we still operate under these rules so we're really bad pirates? You know what I mean? It's a it's a really, like you said, a very satirical look at what we create within our societies. Yes. And I think that like any great piece of art, there are a lot of deep questions inherent in it, even though this is a comedy, even though it's really silly. It's a comedic satire. But you have to look at the satire, like, what are they really saying? What are they really talking about? What questions are they really asking? Um, Gina, thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun chatting with you. Yes, I, I want to do more of these types of episodes. And thank you for making it less scary for me. <laughs> I just want to ask you a question. Why was it scary? Oh, um, yeah. So I would say for a couple of reasons. Just in terms of experience of shows that I've either seen or participated in as an actor, um, not a lot of operas, not a lot of operettas. And then the other thing is that this sh this show, I want to be historically accurate as much as I, I it can be and entertaining. And I think that when you're doing that with a genre, or with a subgenre of musical theater that can often be looked at as boring or just falsely accused of being boring and unrelatable and old, it feels a little more daunting. So that's what I, that's probably what I mean in terms of being a little scared by it. Do yeah. do you have students that feel that way as well? I assume so. For sure, I think that there's something about classical music or more classical music um, that just feels removed it's mm -hmm. just not as familiar and when you're not as familiar not as comfortable and so there's a learning curve i even felt that way a little bit about going to ballet class um where i respected it and wanted to do it but the there was an intimidation that i felt like i wasn't wanted or valued or wasn't going to do it good enough I, I would assume that you run into that as a teacher with vocal students. What, how, how do you approach that? Yes. Um, well, as an actor, there's something that I like to do when I'm preparing a piece or a role, and that's to look at the similarities and differences. And what I've found is that if my initial impressions are that the piece or the character are very similar to me, then I have to lean into the differences. Hmm. And if my initial impression is that 
there are more differences than similarities, then I need to find those similarities mm. and use that as a way in. Beautiful. So I love doing that with my students as well, is to show them what they are already capable of technically, what they may already listen to or sing that has elements that are in these older works. And also just look at the story and what can they pull from their own identity and their own experience that they can relate to. That's fantastic. Sounds like you're a good teacher, Gina. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> that's really, that's amazing. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover, just like Makoto and Sophie, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at amusicalpodcast. We also are on TikTok. We have a Tee Public store where any of the profits that we receive from the designs, many of which are by listeners now, uh, will be donated to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. We have Patreon exclamation point where for only $1 a month you will receive bonus content and episodes. I have some really exciting ones coming up that I'm really, uh, really proud of. We also have our account on Spotify where we always update our playlists to include songs from all of the shows that we've covered. Oh my gosh, there are just so many ways to connect in this great podcast community. I hope that you share it with others. And because it's something that I am super grateful for. Hey, Miss Gina, how do we follow you and everything that you're up to? You can find me at ginamorgano.com and at Gina Morgano on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And I also have my podcast, The Practice Parlor. We might be going through a title change by the time this airs, but you can oh. find my podcast on my website if the title does change. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can email me, Gina at GinaMorgano.com. I would love to hear from you. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It, uh, you are you are just couldn't be lovelier. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, everybody out there, thank you for listening. And uh, remember, it it is it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lynn manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.